there are at least two or three companies that have been started here in order to mine asteroids. It turns out that there's, you know, some valuable stuff in an asteroid. You send something maybe the size of a matchbook or whatever to Alpha Centauri at 20% the speed of light, which means it would get there in like 20 years. There are a lot of technical problems. The hardest technical problem is building the, the giant lasers you're going to need to kick this thing up to high speed once you get it up into orbit. You're listening to Widdishin's podcast, where we take the ultimate sci-fi themes found in books and movies and discuss them with the world's leading scientists, engineers, and experts. This week's podcast is brought to you by our sponsors and preferred retailers, Wordery and The Book Depository. And the book you've seen we're reflecting on this week is Foundation by Isaac Asimov. Now, Foundation is a science fiction short story collection, obviously. It's written by Isaac Asimov and published in its collected form in 1951. So it is perhaps a bit vintage. When the book begins, the 12,000-year-old galactic empire is in a state of decay and decline. And to avoid a 30,000-year dark age that is predicted to follow, a group of scientists, artisans and engineers settle on a world to set up the foundation for the future empire. So the Foundation Trilogy is a work designed on an astonishing scale. The actions it describes cover more than four centuries and many, many solar systems. My name is Amy Rose, and as a host of Wittishins, I bring to you an episode on space travel with Dr. Seth Shostak. Now, Seth Shostak is involved with the search for intelligent extraterrestrial life at the SETI Institute in California. He's trying to find evidence that there's someone out there. He's also committed to getting the public, especially young people, excited about astrobiology and science in general, and he hosts the radio show, podcast, Big Picture Science. Let's have a listen. Seth, wonderful to have you here. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Just so everyone knows, the reason why I uh, hunted Seth down is I saw him on Ancient Aliens, uh, the TV series. I've also seen you, Seth, on other programs, including your TED Talk, which is why I hunted you down uh, for two conversations on the Wittishins podcast. Uh, one is for aliens and the other is space travel. And so we're going to talk about space travel today. And it's very, very hard not to talk about aliens. We might just touch on it a little bit, just saying. But this TED Talk I heard you on, I just want to give everyone a, a bit of an idea of what you had to say on the TED Talk before we start our space travel episode. All right. So the bottom line is this. Because of the increase in speed... And because of the vast amount of habitable real estate in the cosmos, I figure we're going to pick up a signal within two dozen years. And I feel strongly enough about that to make a bet with you. Either we're going to find E.T. in the next two dozen years, or I'll buy you a cup of coffee. So I was fascinated by what you had to say, and obviously I reached out to you to interview you on this topic. But Seth, I really want to talk about how you got to this point, because it's not every day that someone goes from being a normal person, no offense, to basically hunting down signals from aliens. 
So it's an honor to have you here, but can you tell me a little bit about your story and how you became, I think, the director of the SETI Institute, but I'm I'm not quite sure. Please fill me in. I've been following you for a while and I've got mixed bios from uh, from online sources. So so please fill me in. Well, actually not any, no, it's, it's not quite my title. I am senior astronomer, which I think probably is more a reference to my age than to anything else. But... Uh, well, I had studied uh, astronomy in school, actually, physics and astronomy. And, you know, I, I had uh, quite a, a, well, a bit of experience actually learning more about galaxies uh, using radio telescopes uh, around the world, actually. But in 19, when was it? About 1990, I had moved back to the United States. I was living abroad. I was living in Europe at the time, working at a university there. I moved back to the United States. Some people found out that I was here. They called me up uh, one night and said, hey, look, uh, you know, the SETI Institute is here in town. Turned out to be the same town I was living in. That was total coincidence. They said, you want a job here? And uh, they asked, at the right time. So I did take a job here. And uh, so that's that's quite a bit of time ago, getting close to 30 years now. But I've been here ever since. And again, you know, probably because my background was in astronomy. Okay, so technology has definitely developed a lot since you started at SETI. But what technology are you using now? How are you actually trying to connect with aliens? I mean, are you trying to send messages or connect with them that way? Well, actually, Amy Rose, we do not send anything. We leave that to we leave that to the ABC. I mean, they they're probably broadcasting into space right now, but but we don't do that. No, we're just listening. See, the problem with broadcasting into space is that you know you can broadcast, uh, you can point a transmitter at some star system a hundred light years away, and uh, say, hey, you know, uh, we're we're Earthlings, and uh, we really want to meet you guys because we understand you throw great parties or whatever, uh, but. But that would take 100 years, of course, for that signal to get to them and, uh, and another 100 years if they even bothered to answer. So that's 200 years and, you know, you probably lose interest in the whole project. So we don't do that. We, we just listen because listening, you might hear something, you know, as soon as you turn on the receiver. I mean, you don't know, but it's uh, much faster. Also, by the way, there are people who think that broadcasting might be a little dangerous because you don't know who's out there and maybe they would pick up your broadcast and think, oh, well, we're going to wipe out those guys. Uh, I, I personally don't think that's very realistic, but there are people who do. Okay. Now let's talk about space travel. Now, Seth, I know that you've been involved in space for your whole career. So that, that's why I want to talk to you about space travel. And I'm curious to know your thoughts on whether living in space and heading out there for a holiday is on the cards and what you think might be uh, the important factors in achieving those goals, which a lot of people seem to be aiming for. Well, it's sort of like, maybe it's like catching a bus, although I, I, I'm not sure the food would be as good. Well, then again, the food on buses isn't great. Uh, it, it, it will, of course, get easier with time. I mean, it's one thing to talk about what's going to happen in the next 20 or 30 years and something else to talk about what might happen in two or 300 years or two or 3,000 years. But there's no doubt that people are trying to figure out ways to make money by taking people into space. I mean, it's it's pretty easy to make money by putting satellites into orbit. That's probably the biggest 
moneymaker when it comes to the space biz. But I went to a conference many years ago now in uh, Iowa, state of Iowa, and there was a guy there who was actually a businessman, and he was trying to come up with a uh, uh, a business plan that would earn money. And he had uh, considered the possibility of putting very small motels in orbit, if you will. Okay, so they were just rooms that were in orbit. And he he test marketed this with people to see if there was going to be any, you know, any business. And there there was interest. There was considerable interest. People were interested in weightless sex. That's what they were interested in. <laughs> that, is, that is so funny because I was actually just watching a couple of days ago and don't look in, don't, don't um, look into it too much, but <laughs> about sex in space. And I was watching a video, a National Geographic video on, uh, with Neil deGrasse on the, this particular subject. But if you don't rotate up and you're sort of drifting towards your destination, you are weightless. And then everything is different if you're having sex <laughs> in a weightless environment. You need things like straps. It seems to be a topic that lots of people are interested in, so I'm not surprised that there are people who are wanting to go to space just to do this one thing, which is to have sex in space. Well, I guess. I, I'm, I'm told that it would be a boon to the makers of Velcro. That's, <laughs> that's what I was told. But... In, in, in any event, uh, so he was uh, planning to do that, put up little eight little rooms and so forth. And then after, you know, that would be very expensive for a weekend in space. It might cost you many hundreds of thousands of dollars. But, you know, then he could put another eight rooms and then it would get a little cheaper. And, you know, after a couple of years, it would cost less than taking a cruise to uh, New Zealand. I mean, it would be, you know, affordable. So that was his business model. It hasn't happened yet. But I don't doubt that it will happen pretty soon. I mean, all the, the private space entrepreneurs are trying to figure out how to make money. That's one way to make money. The other way to make money, of course, is to mine asteroids and stuff like that. I've heard a lot about mining asteroids. And this is something that sort of concerns me because we've mined a lot of our planet already, trying to get all the resources and suck it out. But is mining on asteroids or even the moon or wherever else, is that on the cards? Do you think it's even going to happen soonish? Well, it might be. Uh, people have certainly, I mean, there's, there are at least two or three companies that have been started here. Uh, and I, I don't know about the rest of the world, but two or three companies here in the United States that have been started in order to mine asteroids. It turns out that there's, you know, some valuable stuff in an asteroid. You might think of an asteroid as, you know, not, I don't know, maybe... You might have that sneaky suspicion that we've cut a fair bit out of this episode. And your intuition is on point. But that's because we can't fit everything in. And you also might have a sneaky suspicion that we've done other interviews that are a little bit crazier. So if you want access to all the uncut episodes and the interviews that we decided to make private, just head to www.wittishinspodcast.com forward slash members only and you might just find your tribe. Okay, I'll let you get back to the episode now. Yeah, yeah, maybe just uh, like I did used to think of an asteroid as just some big, big rock that's going to wipe out our planet. But I did recently see, and it made a few things more clear as to why people would even spend that amount of money um, and create such incredible machines, which is the engineering side of it. It's, It's really expensive process to mine an asteroid. It's because there's some pretty neat stuff on there there's gold and copper and iron and 
yes, things that here on earth we find really, really valuable. So I wouldn't be surprised if they're going to start mining them, to be honest. Yes, there, there is. Uh, there, there's, there's stuff like platinum, for example. And, you know, platinum is quite expensive. It's a very valuable element. And there's a fair amount of platinum in asteroids. Uh, probably the most valuable thing in asteroids is, is the water. You would say water, you know, but it's in space. Yeah, water is, you know, you, in space, you normally would have to bring the water from Earth. And, and water is very dense. In other words, you know, it weighs a lot. It weighs probably like, what is it, like 20 kilos per cubic foot, not to mix uh, units there, but anyhow, something like that. So it's, it's quite expensive to take it up in a rocket. Uh, but if you can find it in an asteroid, well, then that's a lot cheaper. So for future space missions, you want water, and maybe that's the most valuable thing you can haul out of an asteroid. Right. So if we're going to go and mine this asteroid, um, it might be, <laughs> pardon the pun, but the ultimate fly-in, fly-out job, a bit of a FIFO job for all the Aussies who are listening. So if we are going to go and mine these asteroids, and if we are going to go on this honeymoon um, and buy bulk Velcro for whatever the reason. Um, do we need to do any prep? Because from what I gather, and I'm not sure if this is for everybody, but NASA astronauts and other um, travelers who plan to go up into space, they're taking it really seriously. They're preparing their bodies. But how are we going to make it commercial? I mean, how are we going to get heaps of humans to go and, and travel into space? It seems really difficult. Well, I mean, I don't know, but uh, the idea is to make sure you are well enough equipped because otherwise, you know, you've restricted the market. Now, it's true that astronauts that have been rocketed into space for the last 50, 60 years, whatever, I mean, they they do indeed have to undergo rigorous training. They have to be in very good physical shape uh, and so forth and so on. But um, keep in mind, they are, you know, largely piloting the craft that they're in. It would be like saying, now, wait a minute, I I don't know, to get on this commercial flight from, uh, you know, here to Auckland, uh, I'm going to have to be trained as a pilot and I'm going to have to be in good physical shape. My eyes have to be perfect and all that stuff. Well, that's not necessary anymore. You're just a passenger. The only thing you have to do is be able to endure the poor food en route. So, you know, that that's the, that's the model here. You know, Mr. and Mrs. Front Porch. And uh, they don't, you know, I mean, they, they have to have a pulse and stuff like that. And it's probably not a good thing if they have bad heart conditions or something. But, you know, it, uh, the, the idea is that they don't have to be special, specially trained, particularly if, you know, the first couple of flights, yes, it's, it's going to be a little harder. But then again, the first flights, you know, uh, with people, uh, they, you know, <laughs> they probably were kind of screened out too, but, but that changed with time. Have you heard of the, I think they're called uh, nanocraft concept. So it's being labelled as a final frontier. It was all, uh, I believe, in some of the news, not mainstream news, but a team of scientists, including Stephen Hawking, got together with Mark Zuckerberg to create this nanocraft, this tiny spacecraft craft that can be propelled with lasers. Um, do you know anything about that? Because it's pretty... Uh, pretty incredible how they plan on developing these little spaceships that literally will the the energy is will be minimal and it will be able to propel itself with a laser yeah i i think that you're referring to breakthrough starshot 
actually. And that's a project that's been sponsored by a Russian billionaire, Yuri Milner is the guy's name. Actually, he lives about, I don't know, know, like 10 miles away from where I'm speaking to you. So he, he indeed has funded the study, study, that's not to build anything, but a study to uh, investigate the possibility of doing this. He's put $100 million of his own money into that. So that's a lot of money. And the idea is that you send something maybe the size of a matchbook or whatever to Alpha Centauri at 20% the speed of light, which means it would get there and, you know, I don't know, within a human lifetime, right? So it would be like 80 or so years. Sorry, no, let me take that again. More like 20 years to get there. And, you know, it's only interesting if you can get some information back from the thing. So what you'd want is for it to have a camera and, you know, a transmitter and all that stuff. There are a lot of technical problems. The hardest technical problem is building the the giant lasers you're going to need to kick this thing up to high speed once you get it up into orbit. But Uh, People are talking about it. And this is the first time you could say that somebody has put real money behind the idea of sending something not to the planets of our own solar system, but to somebody else's solar system. So how is that project going? I mean, we don't we no longer have Stephen Hawking around, uh, which is incredibly sad. But is is the project still going? Um, Are they ready to take off? Well, I don't know that they're close. They're they're probably not building anything. Remember, this is a study. And as I say, the, the, the technical challenge here is not so much the space, the actual spacecraft, the little matchbook size things that you would kick into space. The real problem is building this gigawatt laser and billions of watts of, uh, you know, coherent laser light that you got to have in order to make this work. And uh, that's that's a very difficult thing to do. I mean, nobody's been able to build something like that. The military, of course, they they do have very powerful lasers, you know, sort of their version of death rays uh, for knocking planes out of the sky or whatever. And uh, even those are rather difficult to to make work. So that's the technical challenge. But at least there's some money to study it. Usually when you invest that amount of money uh, into something you get a return on that particular investment but i'm sort of wondering sending something to space that's fantastic um, and collecting data that's that's also really amazing and required but what does he expect to get back from spending that amount of money on sending something into space um is it for research into how we might travel into space or is it just for data? Uh, why is he even doing it? Because he's a very smart man, yet he's pouring money into something that perhaps might not make a return. Yeah, I think that that's a, that's a good point, uh, Amy Rose. But he's more an investor than a businessman, I think. Uh, Yuri Milner, you know, he has invested in some uh, fairly successful companies like Facebook and uh, Google and others around here. But I don't know that he wants to get any money back from it. Remember, he studied physics. He's very interested in science for its own sake and uh, exploration for its own sake. He's also funded a big SETI project, actually, uh, at the University of California. So he's, you know, he's interested in just seeing something happen. The fact that he won't get any money back from Breakthrough Starshot. He might, he might not. If they develop a laser that, you know, is as powerful as what's needed, then 
there might very well be commercial uh, commercial applications for that sort of thing. But I don't think that's why he's going into it. I think he's just interested in doing something that's possible today if you just take the time to do it. Yeah, I, I really love stories like that where there's investors who participate in an industry. They put their money where their mouth is and they're doing it not because they want to get a return, which seriously, I'm really surprised by, um, but because they're genuinely wanting an outcome and something better to invest in the future of the industry. So Gary Milner, he's, he's awesome. I also know that Mark Zuckerberg, who isn't, uh, I'm not going to speak about him for too long. A lot of people aren't the biggest fans, but yeah, he was involved in this as well with Stephen Hawking and this amazing Russian billionaire. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens with this particular technology. But Seth, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute privilege being able to talk to you. I've been following you for a while now. Uh, And we will be speaking with you again in season four on connecting with aliens and receiving signals from aliens and what you're doing at the SETI Institute and the technologies that you're using to communicate with aliens over there. So thank you so much for joining me today. It's It's been wonderful. Amy Rose, it's been a real pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for listening to the episode with Dr. Seth Shostak today. I hope that you learned even just a little bit about the future of space travel and how far we've come and how far we're going. Please subscribe on whatever podcasting application you're listening to this podcast on. And remember, if you want to become a member, just head to the website, www.widdishinspodcast.com. Thank you.